that with us. Thank you, Tyler. In 60 years of full-time ministry for me, uh, there's been no year like this one. Uh, But the pandemic, for one thing, has made it no year like this one for everyone, unless they were alive in 1918 and conscious and old enough to remember. This has been a year like no other year. But it's also the number of loved ones who went to be with the Lord that has made this a year like none others. Uh, Comments from families and friends who attended services for uh, those loved ones revealed confusion often about life after death. Um, There's disagreement in the Christian church at large. Um, Many have been taught that there is a third place for Christians besides here on earth or there in heaven. There's a third place, they say. A place called purgatory. It is uh, taught by the largest body within the whole Christian church. And even though we do not teach that, it uh, lends to confusion among friends and family as people exchange ideas and different teachings. And so I have encountered all through this year uh, questions and wondering. Sometimes there's not a question, but it's the way a person refers to uh, their loved one who has departed. How we refer to them. Are they dead? Yes, in a way, but no, in a way. Are they lost to us here and now in our daily lives? They are absent. But they're not lost. We know where they are. We do. Sometimes it's the way we refer to the ones we have loved and no longer can hold. Uh, All Saints Sunday, All Saints Day, is a good day to address this question. It is not a subject that uh, most ministers uh, visit annually. I'm not sure I have preached on this directly uh, in the years I was here before or in the past year. But this year, because of the number of people we are missing, um, I thought it was important to, um, to share with you what God's Word teaches us. I think it's important for us to be clear not just for ourselves, but in conversations with our family, especially conversations with our children. Sometimes we're hesitant to disagree with someone else in our family or a friend or a neighbor or coworker, but it is an important topic. It has tremendous implications for our lives, how we feel, 
how we live. We have encountered the reality of death in a great way, in a, in a, a heavy way, uh, this pandemic. And so uh, I just thought it was important to take some time this morning. More can be said about this than I can put into the time we have. Uh, I hope you email me with questions if you have something. Um, It's important for us to know. Um, I rarely printed out a sermon beforehand and put it out in the entryway, but this morning I did that. So there's some copies uh, on the reception desk by the lamp. If you uh, want to remember something we read and something I said, uh, it's important for us to keep things and and receive them and embrace them that are in God's word. So let us pray for understanding. Lord, uh, we thank you for calling us together today and thank you for speaking to us through your word and speaking to us in our hearts and minds through your spirit. Uh, You opened the minds of those first disciples after you were resurrected and appeared to them again in that upper room. You told them many things in your word and opened their minds to understand that. We ask you to open our minds that we appropriate what you've caused to be written, translated, printed, be in our homes. We thank you for helping us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon text this morning is from Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, probably his fourth, because there were some missing letters in there. The first letter we have is probably the second. We're missing the first and the third as we read those letters. Second Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. Let us listen to God's word this morning. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden. Because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we do have confidence. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may receive recompense 
for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. I much prefer to uh, tell some of the wonderful stories out of the gospel and just get away from the pulpit almost and talk to you eye to eye. I'm going to follow and read a little bit more than I like to do uh, so that what I say uh, really comes out as to what what I have uh, provided for you in the entry area. Let's go back first and be clear about the images that Paul used here in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians. First of all, the earthly tent we live in is our physical body. It is temporary. That's why he called it a tent. And all our bodies will die. But Paul says, if our tent is destroyed because he wrote about 20 years after Jesus walked through Galilee. And he expected Jesus to return before many followers would die. That's why he said, if our tent is destroyed. Writing today, we would probably say, when our tent is destroyed. Jesus uh, Paul also says, we also have a permanent structure, a house from God, not made with human hands. He says, in this tent, we groan. We struggle in this earthly life, and we would love to have that permanent life eternal if, Paul says, when we take off this tent, or we die, we are not found naked. What he means by that is we are not found unclothed by Christ. He says we are still confident, even though we know that while we are in our earthly body, we are away from the Lord. Because the Lord is not physically present on earth now. He is spirit in spirit with us each wherever we are and when we gather. The old King James Version, instead of saying the word away, said we are absent from the Lord or we're absent from our body. The pastor I worked with for 16 years at Grace used to say at every memorial service, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I'd go and I'd go, where's that absent word? I'd go look in there. There's no absent in, the, in, in, in Corinthians today. Because the modern translation a little bit more said we're away instead of absent. But I kept hearing that phrase, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, verses 6 through 8 clearly state that there are just two places. The first, in our earthly body, 
walking with the Spirit of the Lord by faith. The second is at home with the Lord in heaven. There is no third place where Christians must go to atone for their minor sins by suffering for thousands of years. What Paul states here is consistent with what Jesus himself said the night before he was crucified. Jesus was with his disciples, you may remember, at that last meal with them when he instructed them to remember him with the broken bread and the cup. After instructing them with that, he said this to them, which is recorded by the Apostle John in the 14th chapter of his account of the gospel. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe is trust. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Did Jesus promise them that because they were perfectly holy? Not a chance. The accounts of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his birth, life, death, and resurrection are also accounts of the lives of those first followers of Jesus as he met them in one place after another and called them to follow him and called certain ones to really be with him the whole time and to be leaders in this together. No, it was because they were perfectly loved, not because they were perfectly holy. And it was because they would be, they would be perfectly cleansed and forgiven and redeemed and reconciled the very next day as he died for them on that cross outside of Jerusalem. It was through his death, the death of their friend, the death of the Son of God, the death of God incarnate with us, the death of the sin-bearing Lamb of God, that they were told they would be with him in heaven. And that he would take them to himself and not park them in thousands of years of suffering purification. And if that is not enough for us, Luke reports in his account of the gospel that the next day, as he is on the cross, Jesus was crucified between two criminals. Some gospel accounts say thieves. Luke says two criminals. 
one on either side. And just as a tip, that story of those two criminals is told in all four accounts of the gospel. So important is that story. Luke reports that while Jesus was on the cross, one of the two criminals who was being executed with him joined in with the crowd who was deriding Jesus, mocking Jesus, telling him to, he was everything he said he was, take himself down off the cross. One thief joined with them, mocking Jesus, criticizing him, angry at him, and saying, and while you're at it, take me too. The second criminal was no saint either, but Jesus assured him that he would be in heaven immediately upon his death. The slide I want to put up is this. The other criminal rebuked the first and then admitted that the two of them deserved to die. But Jesus had done nothing wrong. When this second criminal said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, Today you will be with me in paradise. That second criminal was no saint either, any more than the rest of the disciples. And he had only brought his life together at the hands of others who placed him beside Jesus. But he knew enough about Jesus to believe that he was a king with a kingdom, that he was of God. And he also knew that he, the criminal, deserved to die, but Jesus did not. There is no text in the New Testament in contrast to this story of Jesus telling this sinner like all the rest of us, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is simply another word for heaven. It is not a different place. So how is it that a doctrine that describes purgatory a place of purification where the vast majority of Christians are taught they must spend hundreds, maybe thousands of years in torment. How is it that a doctrine like that can arise in the Church of Jesus Christ during the Middle Ages and be officially declared a doctrine of the Church at the Council of Trent, which met from six, uh, 1545 to 1560 in response to the charges of all of the reformers that this was wrong. It was not part of the gospel, not something Jesus taught. How can centuries of leadership continue to mislead the largest branch of the Christian church with fear and falsehood in spite of the Reformation? and on down into our own 21st century. I did not have space or time 
to show you YouTubes of well-known leaders in that branch of the church. From people like Fulton J. Sheen, bishop on television in uh, the 1950s and 60s, widely heard and respected and listened to across this country. Or another uh, wonderful woman named Sister Angelica, YouTube's showing her teaching people listening as she explains that they must consider themselves blessed to be able to go to purgatory where they can suffer enough in order to atone for their own minor sins. Jesus will take care of the big ones, but you take care of all the little ones. It is because this version of the church starts with something very true but adds something very false about God. They start with the holy righteousness of God before whom all people must appear for judgment. That is true. They follow that with the false doctrine that the atoning death of Christ is not sufficient to cleanse us from all sin. They are able to do that because the authority of the word of God for them has been subordinated to the authority of the church hierarchy. The gospel of the grace of God that runs through the New Testament has been ignored. The testimony of all of the early church, the authors of the letters, the gospel accounts, been ignored from John to Paul to Peter himself, his own words. Listen to this word of God through the Apostle John in his first letter. We say this often as our assurance of forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. Listen to this word through Paul in his letter to the Ephesians, another one that will be familiar. I've collected them for you. I offer them to you to keep, to build into your lives. But God, who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Immeasurable grace. Not limited. Immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. Listen to this from Peter himself, the one this branch of the church places in such high and first position. Peter wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sins we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Past tense. Done. Nothing for you and me to do but to receive a gift an immense, enormous gift of God that sets us free from the burdens and the fears, the paralysis of that hanging over us. And that prospect of God committing us to thousands of years of suffering. The word of God through Christ and his first disciples in these three places and many more in the New Testament plus the Old Testament scriptures give us three gifts for our past, our future, and our present. For our past, we, can, we are given a great gift of great comfort. Comfort. Those we have loved but are no longer with us on earth are at home in heaven in the presence of God by the all-sufficient grace of God in Christ the Lamb of God. They are at home with him. It is gratifying It is relief, it is assurance, it is expectation to see them again. The second, for our future, we are given a gift of great courage. We all face a certain earthly future. Our tent will come down. And when it does, we will be welcomed into our heavenly home as soon as we are away or absent from the body. And when we breathe our last, when all signs of life are gone, we are away from our body. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It is as soon as we are away for all who have called upon the Lord. All who have called upon the Lord in all of the ways that they might. With much knowledge or minimal knowledge. Like the criminal beside Jesus. All who call upon the Lord shall be saved. What is the gift 
to us for our present. We are given a great gift of gratitude. The more we understand the ultimate holiness, righteousness, and majesty of God, that, and the more we understand how far we are from qualifying to be in the presence of God, which is what that other branch keeps telling them. You're not qualified to be in God's presence. That's true. But we are qualified in Christ and nothing is left to done. All that we do as disciples of Christ is now out of gratitude. Gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. We love because he first loved us. We should be enormously grateful for the grace of God in Christ, which has set us free from all unrighteousness. Yes, we do still struggle, but Christ is in us, his spirit is with us, and he leads us into a maturity even in this tent, not completely. But in Christ, we are treated as perfectly justified, just as if I'd never sinned. We appear before the judgment seat of God, which is also the seat of Christ. That gratitude moves us to love our families the way God desires. That gratitude moves us to love our neighbors and even our enemies. That gratitude moves us to cast our lives together in the body of Christ. This body of Christ, this portion of the whole body of Christ, that gratitude is what brings us and motivates us to be together and work together and trust each other, to be here for each other, to be with each other. That gratitude moves us when we covenant together for the year ahead. No other motivation captures or compares to being grateful for the love of God in Christ. The deaths of us who depart are by nature very difficult and destructive. The griefs of us who remain are deeply distressing and depressing. But the love of God through the word of God can transform the ways we walk through these passages. Life in Christ defeats death for all who trust in him. May we be filled with comfort, courage, and deep, deep gratitude. Amen. Will you pray with me?